If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you this morning, there should be one right in front of you in the pew. Uh, also printed for you in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible at home, be, feel free to take that uh, black pew Bible with you today as our gift to you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's near the end of the Bible. We are continuing in a series in this book and going today into the topic of godliness and godlessness. These phrases that are maybe familiar to you if you've been around churches, you think, oh, that's a godly person. Uh, They seem to have a life in God that is robust and, and good. And so you may wonder, how does somebody get godly? How does that happen? And we have these 13 verses in 2 Timothy, which we're going to be reading today. I realized about Thursday that there's no way I'm going to get through them all. And so I split it up into two parts, um, which means that unfortunately, uh, we get most of the bad news uh, this morning. Don't worry, we still preach the gospel. But there's a negative image of godliness, and then there's the positive one, verses 1 through 9, and then verses 10 through 13. And so we will be looking at those second group of verses next week. But first, the negative image today. What godliness is, is not, in a sense. And so let's read the whole passage, though, and then we'll dive in. So, chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among those are those who creep among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is the word of the Lord. It's quite the long, long list there of negative things. 
hard to read, hard to hear, hard to understand. And we're going to talk about today how it relates to us as believers as we kind of identify with some of, of those things on the list. But there's a, there's a popular concept uh, that, that's kind of flying around the internet right now called uh, imposter syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, it is pretty much everywhere. As I just YouTube searched it, there was at least three or four uh, TED Talks on the, on the topic of imposter syndrome. What is imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome is the feeling, it's like a psychological state where you believe that you are a fraud. That your successes in life or your successes in business or in position or whatever it might be, you received because of circumstances or luck or something else. You shouldn't be where you are, basically. That feeling that comes over you. That syndrome that strikes you, I don't belong here. And by the, uh, the estimates that you found online, there's roughly 70% of people, they say, that suffer from one of these symptoms. Self-doubt. Perfectionism. Neuroticism. These types of things where I'm always kind of looking at myself. Am I measuring up? Or basically, am I fooling everyone? Now, I would think that 70% would be pretty low. I would hope so. Only 70% of people ever experience a self-doubt, a crippling self-doubt. I don't belong here. That feeling is common to pretty much all of us. Now, that, that may or may not be a, a useful psychological experiment to go through. Um, you know, do I have imposter syndrome or not? But I do want to talk about it, how it relates to our spiritual life because I think that we bring this into our spiritual life and we often feel this way and we often have these doubts and insecurities and we think, am I a spiritual imposter? Do I really believe this? Or am I, am I playing a part Am I fooling those who are around me? Have I learned something that puts me in the, in the category of having the appearance of godliness but denying its power for my life? Am I a spiritual imposter? Do I, am I godly? Am I getting more godly? Or am I just appearing to be godly? And of course, this whole imposter syndrome doesn't really ever address the fact that there are imposters. None of the TED Talks that I watched talk about that. All of it is about how you can overcome imposter syndrome. And maybe you need to. I'm not saying you, you don't. But maybe there isn't just a syndrome. It's a possibility, right? In fact, it is not just a possibility here Paul says to Timothy, there are imposters. The last verse, he says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It is possible to be deceived. It is possible to have the appearance of godliness and not be godly. It is also possible 
to feel such self-doubt, such crippling self-doubt, and not believe the gospel that you're always wondering that I don't belong here when Jesus welcomes you in. How are we to understand these things? How do we know? Because I look at this list and I think, yeah, I'm checking at least a few of these boxes. Lover of self. Lover of money. Yeah, sometimes. Proud. Been there. Arrogant. Abusive. Maybe. Maybe it's in my family. Disobedient to parents. Anybody in here been that way? Once or twice, maybe. Is this me? We wonder. Is there really godliness at all? Or is there just the appearance of godliness? So I want to ask the overall question of these two weeks. Maybe I'll stretch it to three. We'll see. What is real godliness? And today I want to look at this imposter godliness and see how we fit into this story where Paul is warning against these people. So let's dive in. Verse 1, he says, understand this, that in these last days there will come times of difficulty. That's the setting for this. The last days. Now don't get tripped up by that. The last days just means every, every day since Christ. Paul was in the last days and we are in the last days. This is not some kind of super future uh, end times passage. Okay, the, the evidence for that is because Paul then lists 19 characteristics of, of ungodliness, 19 of them, and then he says, avoid such people. Now, if those people were all the way in the future, he wouldn't have said avoid such people. So he assumes that these are the last days, and we should assume that we're in the last days as well. Besides which, we know, practically speaking, that all of these things exist right now. We can see it everywhere. That's the setting. So just a couple of questions I want us to ask about this imposter godliness. First, what does it look like? And secondly, what do I do about it? What does it look like and what do I do about it? So first, what does it look like? And I would say it looks like disorder. That's really the theme that runs through this, that we were made in a certain order to follow after God, and every sin that comes from this is a disordered thing. It is out of order. We are upside down. We are backwards. That's the theme that runs throughout these 19 things, and of course, we can't talk about every single one of them or define what they mean, that kind of thing, but we can look at a few buckets that these fall into. And there's three of them, that, three categories, I would say. And the first and most prominent is this, disordered loves. Disordered loves. You see the opening and the closing thing are about love. In verse 2, for people will be lovers of self. At the end, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In all, there are five references to love here. What do those who are imposters love? They love the self. They love money. They love pleasure. What do they not love? They don't love the good. That's what he says in verse 3. Not loving the good. Verse 4. Not lovers of God. 
This is at the core what being disordered means. It's uh, what ungodliness means. It means that we have a disordered love. This is the abandonment of the greatest commandment in Scripture because the Scriptures tell us that there is a command that rises above all the rest and a second that is like it. Jesus takes the words from Deuteronomy. He pieces them together. He summarizes the law and the prophets. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the central command. And so to have a disordered love then means that we are not living in an orderly way the way that God has called us to live. And what it's been traded for is the very first thing that he mentions, and I think he mentions it first for a reason. For people will be lovers of self. See, that's the ultimate love distortion. Is when you put the end of that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, at the very beginning, and you say, it's the self that then helps me love God and others. Loving self. What does it mean to love pleasure or to love money if it doesn't first mean that we love ourselves more than other things. Of course, that is the source. James Davison Hunter, a writer um, in the evangelical tradition, he said this, the fascination with the self and human subjectivity has then become a well-established cultural feature of evangelicalism. Generally, in the latter part of the 20th century, not simply an ephemeral fashion among the younger generation been very popular for a long time to say oh young people they're so obsessed with themselves he says no it's become a defining feature of evangelicalism for every age and by the way he wrote that in the 1980s good 20 years before the iphone hit the scene the love of self the focus on the self is the start it distorts all the other loves if you want to be challenged with this i recommend that you read uh, James K. Smith's book, You Are What You Love. A lot of truth there. You are what you love. He talks about how we don't just define ourselves by what we do or by uh, who we are, what we find. It's what do you love? What do you want? It's a more predictable way to understand who you are is to ask what you're seeking after. And I think it was either in his writing or maybe a talk that he did. Um, I, I remember him referencing this, this beer commercial. Um, Michelob Ultra beer commercial that was popular a few years ago. And in the commercial, there's, there's a guy who walks out of his apartment or his townhouse to the street and, uh, and he sees his car and then he lifts up his hand and he, he swipes and the car disappears and he's got options on how he's going to get to work. And he decides, hey, it's, a, it's a whimsical day. I, um, you know, I'm going to take the bike. So he, he selects the bike. And now he's riding to work. It switches scenes and it's in his office. And his office is kind of boring and there's no windows. And he's at, the, you know, at his cubicle. And so he, he expands, right? He, he swipes uh, out. And, and the, the, the walls expand and he has a view of the city. But it's not quite high enough for him to see. So then he swipes up. And, and his office rises up to the top level where he can see the city, implying, of course, not just that he has a better view, but that he's now promoted himself. Um, then he switches scenes again, and he's on the golf course, and he's just sinking 
the perfect putt. All of his friends are behind him, just cheering him on, and he winks at them, and then he taps, and suddenly the field around him becomes the bar, right? And now it's happy hour. And of course, they're serving up Michelob Ultra. And the voiceover over the commercial says this, Welcome to the Ultra Life. Welcome to the ultra life. Now what that has to do with drinking cheap, nasty, light beer, I have no idea. (laughs) But there's a promise there, right? The promise is, wouldn't life be ultra if what we do on our screens, if if the, the, the way that we interface with getting any kind of information or any kind of action that we want Wouldn't it be ultra? Wouldn't it be the ultra life? If that was writ large, if we could just swipe and find everything that we wanted at the touch of our fingers. Is that the ultra life? The thing about being a human being is that we are desiring, wanting creatures. God made us that way, but the Scriptures tell us that we're actually wanting Him. To love Him. That actually the ultra-life would be the one where we are rightly ordered with Him, where we follow His commands, and we live His, his life and have His joy, have the abundance of life that He gives. Not found in, in ultimating ourselves, which is the promise that turns out to be a lie. God has made us for Himself, St. Augustine said. We're restless until we rest in Him. We are desiring creatures, but when our desires get out of order, our loves get out of order, it leads to ungodliness. Disordered loves would be the first category. The second category would be disordered relationships. There's a string of these 19 things that apply to our relationships with a particular focus on our family life. The, the fact that we could be ungrateful, that we could be unholy, heartless, unappeasable, without self-control. It's talking about these things in reference to what we do to other people. And some of them lead not just into the realm of, of things that we're thinking or doing in our hearts, but things that are actions in real life. Abusive, brutal, treacherous. The word treacherous there is the same word that was used of Judas when he betrayed Christ. He was treacherous and traded his relationship with Christ for 30 pieces of silver. These things are disordered because, again, God designed us for a second great commandment. That our love for God then spills out into love of neighbor. That you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so relationships get sideways. They get disordered. They get upside down to the point of doing things like, hey, you're disobedient to your parents. Which is a disorder. We, don't th- we think of it as so common, but it is a disorder. One person that I read said that this, this analysis would fit right in with the sitcom writers of today which seemingly portray every parent as a buffoon and every kid as a wisecracking genius. I mean, that's, that's common, right? And it's funny. It's funny because it's disordered. There's disordered loves. There is disordered relationships. The third category is disordered minds. 
We need to read these verses again because there's so much here that we don't understand on initial reading. Verses 6-8, through let's read it again. For among them, among these ungodly, there are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. We have questions. What is he talking about? Well, Paul is talking about a very specific situation to apply it to a general principle. The specific situation, those that creep into households there, he actually says those who creep into the households, use the definite article there, the households, he's talking about the house churches in Ephesus where Timothy is a pastor. He's saying in this situation, these households, there are false teachers who creep in. And he's talking about the women, potentially the owners of the house, who were weak women, little, diminutive, that's what the word means. He's saying they were those who got carried away with passions and led astray. He's talking about a specific environment in Ephesus. It was a, it was a bad church situation where there were these people who displayed their knowledge all the time and they just they thought they were so great and then situationally there were these women who who wanted to inflame that and so they invited them into the churches and then just everything got disordered he's not here talking about weakness of women in general or something like that 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 is often misread as he's talking about here these women these women and these men have distorted the truth in Ephesus False teachers who know the weak spot and then exploit it. And the, the condemnation in verse 7 is this. They're always learning and never arriving at the truth. Or later, Jonas and Jambres, these examples, were corrupted in mind. Always learning, never arriving at the truth. Corrupted in the mind. What does he mean? He means there are always things to talk about. There's new insight, but it never goes back to the basics. It never goes back to the heart of the Christian message about Christ. The thing once delivered that Paul is so concerned that Timothy guard and protect throughout this whole book, he says it never gets back to that. It's all about how to be new and how to be interesting. And they've distorted their minds to think that that's the thing that God cares about. Always learning and never arriving at the truth. The example he uses is Jonas and Jambres. Who are these people? If you look in the Old Testament, you won't find their names anywhere. But they are there in the story. They are the two sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt who Moses faced when he brought his people out of Israel when he approached Pharaoh. Pharaoh had his own court sorcerers. And among them were Jonas and Jambres. We know this from historical documents, Jewish tradition, the Targums, these places. We find these names all over the place. It was common knowledge that Jonas and Jambres 
were these two sorcerers. So when Moses came in and said, let my people go, and, no, and, and Pharaoh wouldn't, and he threw down his staff, and the staff becomes a snake, then there was two who came forward with their own staffs and turned them into snakes, and then the staff of Moses, or the snake of Moses, ate up the other two staffs, just as an example. They, how it's relevant here, used trickery to make themselves seem more advanced than they actually were. They had the appearance of power, but they didn't have the power. And so, here, Paul assumes that his readers know who these people are. Those two names have become synonymous with charlatans, right? Like we might say, oh, well, they're just a bunch of couple, a couple of snake oil salesmen. Then they might have said, well, they're just a Jonas and Jambres. That's just who they are. And he says, you know, they won't get very far. Verse 9, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. That is the hope that those who are in corrupted mind in the end will be shown for who they are. That's a lot of heavy stuff. Disordered loves, disordered relationships, disordered minds. That is the picture, the negative image of ungodliness. The lack of godliness. I want to tie that together for us this morning and say this. The way that we can understand all of that is this. The power of imposter godliness is found in hiding. The thing that ties together all of those descriptors of ungodliness, the thing is that those are things that are hidden or can be easily hidden. That thrive in the dark, in the secret places. And that's why they can have, in verse 5, the appearance of godliness. But they deny its power because they're believing in the power of hiding. That is where the power for ungodliness comes from. It comes from hiding. So what do I do about this? What are we to do with this information? The first is to avoid... First thing is two things I want to say. Avoid imposters and then analyze ourselves for impost, as imposters. The first thing we need to see is this. Paul is clearly addressing a church problem here. He's talking to leaders. He's saying this church in Ephesus is dysfunctional. There's not a positive word in here about this church. And some churches are like this. And some groups of Christians are like this. There is a there is a sweltering closeness, a, a boundary setting, a this is our tight-knit group and these are the things we do and we don't transgress that. And that is toxic, he's saying here. It is the opposite of godliness. And those types of churches often have the appearance of godliness in my experience. Having been around them, been a part of them. Leaders who say, we take God seriously. And because of that, because of that, we know how, exactly how you should act. We know exactly how you should vote. We know exactly how you should dress. We know exactly how your family should be structured. We know exactly how you should live before God. If you don't believe that that is what Paul is talking about, I'll give you an example from the first book of Timothy. 
where he's talking to the same church in Timothy in the same situation. And he says, there's some among you who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. As a couple of examples of what this type of environment could, pro- could produce. A, a forbidding of marriage, of God's institution of marriage. To forbid it, saying that the truly spiritual are those who don't get married. And to say, well, you shouldn't eat or drink of these things. That kind of culture is opposite of godliness. And so if you want a paradigm to understand, ask yourself this. The leaders who I'm around, the pastors, the churches, the parents, the teachers, the friendships that I have, are they more restrictive than God? Are they more restrictive than God? Swollen with conceit. It's one of the aspects of ungodliness. In my experience, these types of groups, these types of churches, these types of Christian gatherings, wherever they may be, are the places where the most brutal things happen. Where there are secrets. Where there are boundaries. And may God protect us from ever being that place. What should you do if you find yourself in those circles, in those churches, being around those who have the appearance of godliness, but there is just a rottenness underneath the core? Paul says, avoid them. Run away. If there is evidence of deeply disordered loves and no repentance. That's the first thing. Avoid such groups, such leaders. Get away from the actual imposters. But then, on another level, as we have said before, this letter is not just to Timothy. Paul intends it to be read to the churches. And there is no doubt in my mind that as they read this and they read that list and they heard that, they're thinking, is that me? Am I the imposter? Maybe not all 19 of them, but maybe I'm like 15 out of 19. Does that make me an imposter? What you need to understand is this, what we've said before, the power of imposter godliness is in hiding. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Well, you take away the hiding, then you take away your ability to be an imposter. An imposter, by definition, is someone who hides, who has a separate life. And so, what makes you an imposter is not that you struggle. It's that you've made peace with it and said, well, I can live however, the way, whatever way I want to as long as I keep up the appearance that I'm not living away from God. And that that's the main thing. See, the appearance of godliness is not a thing. It's not, it's, it, it doesn't last. It has no impact. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then he gives some examples. Those who give to the needy and they make a big show of it. Those who pray in public and they make a big show of their prayers. He says they have received their reward in full. That's it. That's the payoff. When someone walks by and says, oh, they seem very spiritual. 
You seem very generous. That one moment is the payoff for that kind of imposter godliness. For all the work that you've put into maintaining the appearance of that godliness, that is your reward. What is that in comparison with the eternal reward of the Father who knows you better than anyone and still desires to give you Himself He knows better than anyone how you stack up on this list. He knows. He still desires to give you Himself this morning freely in the Gospel. But if all you're hoping in is your perceived righteousness, then you have no hope. But if you switch your hope from the righteousness that you present to others and you put it into the righteousness that is Christ that He freely gives you, then you have every hope. You have every assurance that you are godly because He is making you so. So that real godliness always begins with repentance. You see, always, repentance means that we come out of the darkness and we we come into the light. We share what is wrong with ourselves. We confess our sins to the Lord as we've done in the service. We confess our sins to one another. We live openly and freely. We don't cling to an appearance that isn't true of us. We let go of those things and we constantly repent. And when we live in the light like this, we become more Godly. It is necessary to become godly to first repent. Otherwise, what you will come to trust in is your own ability to do better, your own ability to look a certain way in front of other people. Jesus came for the heartless, He came for the lovers of money, He came for the slanderous. He came for those who struggle with self control, for the disobedient to their parents. Every follower of Christ has been all of these things in some measure. But there is a difference between this dysfunctional church in Ephesus, the true church that God calls out, and those who are imposters. And the difference is this. We don't lay claim to our righteousness or ability to fix it. And we don't lay claim to a position or an outward show what we lay claim to is Christ's mercy on our behalf. He gives us this identity. And so the promise of the Scripture is if you come out of hiding, you will always find grace. If you come out of hiding, you will always find grace. It removes the power, the only power that the imposter has, which is hiding. And When you remove that power and you realize that all you have is Christ, then you are in your first step towards godliness. And then you do it again. And then you do it again and again. And you are moving towards Christ as you repent more and more, come more and more out of hiding, you become more and more godly. Let's pray. pray this morning, Father, that we would not deny the power of the Gospel.
power that it has to draw us out. Those of us who live in hiding, who believe that that is the safest place to be, would you draw us out as you do so gently? As we look at your scripture and your way with people, Christ, you so gently draw us out. It's not the voice of condemnation, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. I pray that we would know how kind and generous you have been in the beloved this morning in giving us Christ to come and feast on him and to know that he has given us everything in himself. That we would be so filled with that joy and that discovery that we would see that there is much more freedom in living out in the open than trying to cover it up and prove that we're something that we're not. Would you help us by your spirit to do that in the name of Christ? Amen.